And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? For that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, Rise! Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. We come before you, God, asking that You would quicken our hearts to Your Word. That for those who are weary, they would find encouragement and strength in Your Son. For those who are living as disobedient children, Your kindness would lead them to repentance. And for those whose hearts are hard and whose eyes are blind, that they would see the glorious reality of a risen Savior this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most important questions, and I've said it before while preaching, that we could ask ourselves is, who is Jesus? A lot hinges on that question. Who is Jesus is maybe most, the most important question that we could ask ourselves. We come and some people look at Jesus as a good teacher, a kind man, full of compassion. But it stops at that. Some have claimed him to be just a great prophet for God, and it stops at that. Some can even say that he is their Savior, but it stops at that. This question, who is Jesus, is important because we are identifying Him. Listen to how Matthew identifies Jesus or who he identifies Jesus as. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew holds back no punches for us. He gets straight to the point. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ or simply put, the Genesis, the beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David. There it is. Jesus is the son of David. Why is that important to us then this morning? 
Well, it's important to us this morning because what Matthew is doing is identifying Jesus as the King whom God would establish a kingdom and a throne forever. What Matthew is doing straight from the beginning of his Gospel is giving Jesus the title. If you were to ask Matthew, who is Jesus? Matthew would say, Jesus is King. Jesus is King. wonder how many of us, when we think about Jesus, think about Jesus as a King. Do you think about Jesus as a king? Do you look at him as a good teacher? Do you look at him as just a prophet? Do you look at him as just a savior? Or do you look at Jesus as king? This morning, we are looking at Jesus as King. What we will see in our passage, as Jesus was forced out of one of the towns that He was just at, the people begged Him to leave. And as He was begged to leave, Him and His disciples get into the boat. They go on. We see that they go on to his hometown. Well, not his hometown, but the place that he was living, Capernaum. And as he was living in Capernaum, and as he went back to Capernaum, he went to one of the synagogues. And as he was at one of the synagogues, it overflowed. And as it overflowed, there was a paralytic man who heard that Jesus was there. The healer. The great physician. And so, a couple of his friends bring him there. And instead of receiving healing right away, Jesus forgives this man of his sins. And a couple of scribes being there question Jesus. They call him a blasphemer. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, challenged them. Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk. So Jesus displays His kingly authority. And people are led to glorify in fear God. So the aim of this sermon this morning is simple. The aim is this. Because Jesus is the King, He has the authority to forgive sins. Let me say this again. Because Jesus is the King, He has the authority to forgive sins. And we're going to see this in three ways this morning. First, in verses 1 and 2, Jesus forgives those who come to Him in faith. Second, verses 3-7, through Jesus heals those who He forgives. And third, verses, or verse 8, Jesus should be worshipped because He forgives. 
So starting in verses 1 and 2, Jesus forgives those who come in faith. We see that Him and His disciples are getting out of the boats. They get back to Capernaum, and Jesus is found teaching. Mark tells us that there were so many people in this place that Jesus was teaching that there were people outside of the place listening in. The doorways were packed. The windows were packed. It was a packed house. Jesus was one who taught with authority. His teaching was attractive. It caused people to want to come to Him and listen. And so we see something quite incredible take place. A few people in the area found out that Jesus was teaching. And they bring their paralytic friend to see Jesus. These four men carried their paralytic friend to Jesus, knowing that Jesus has the authority to heal. This is what we've seen consistently through Matthew's Gospel so far, is the authority Jesus possesses over sickness as He's casted out illnesses and diseases. This was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah had said. And here is the compassionate Savior who is healing people. The most unlikely people. The people that society would have said they don't deserve healing. And yet, these four friends took their paralytic friend to Jesus. They took him to this place that was jam-packed. There was no place to bring him in. And so, as Mark fills in the, the, the story for us a little bit, we read that they, his friends, climbed all the way to the roof of this building, took the roof out, off of the building, and lowered their friend down to Jesus. Here's the thing. Good friends bring their friends to Jesus. There is without a doubt that a good friend brought you to Jesus at some point. Are you being a good friend and bringing somebody to Jesus? These friends knew that the only way that this man would be healed was by Jesus. After years and years of laying in his bed, his friends understood and heard the authority that Jesus possessed. And so as they lowered the paralytic man down to Jesus, what do we read happens? This is the most unlikely outcome, isn't it? If this was our first time reading this, would we expect Jesus to heal this man right away? Haven't we seen this time after time if we started in Matthew 1 and worked our way to Matthew 9? That when people come to Jesus, He heals them, and yet this isn't the case with this man, is it? Instead, we get the most unlikely outcome right here. As he's lowered in, Jesus looks at him and first labels him in a very intimate way. Take heart, my son. Jesus is identifying with this paralytic man 
by calling him son. Identifying him with an intimate relationship. A sinner. Jesus is identifying as a son. And instead of Jesus telling him to get up and walk right away, we see Jesus say, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I think one of the most amazing things that we're going to see in this passage before us is the gospel. The salvation message. Look at what takes place right from the beginning as Matthew is showing us and Jesus is displaying for us. Is a paralytic man who had to be brought to Jesus. He could not get up and walk to Jesus for his own healing. He could not crawl to Jesus for his own healing. His, his arms, his legs were dead. They were not working. They had no function or use. He could not, by any means, bring himself to Jesus at all. And yet his good friends brought him to Jesus. And we see that Jesus, as he marvels or he looks at their faith, he saw their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. Is this not the gospel before us? As we helplessly come to Jesus? Does Paul not tell us that we were dead in our sins and trespasses? I don't know about you, but being dead does not mean that you can walk to Jesus. Being dead does not mean you come to Jesus on your own. When you are dead in your sin and trespasses, you are dead. Some people equate this to throwing out a raft in the sea because we are drowning in need of saving, and yet that misses the mark so much. We are not drowning in an ocean looking for rescuing. We have sunk to the bottom and are decaying. And we need somebody to go and bring us up and rescue us up. And here we see the good friends of this paralytic man who in faith take him to Jesus. And first comes faith and then comes forgiveness. What prevents us from bringing our friends to Jesus? What prevents us from sharing the healing news of the Gospel that causes a divine healing to take place in our hearts and brings us peace with God? What prevents us from bringing our friends to Jesus? First, I'd like to suggest that the first thing that prevents us from bringing our friends to Jesus is We've forgotten our own testimony of forgiveness from Jesus. We've forgotten that at some point somebody graciously brought the good news of the gospel to us. At some, at some point, somebody proclaimed and spoke the gospel of life into our lives. At some point, Somebody sat with us patiently, 
prayed for us earnestly and urgently. We've forgotten our own testimony, which then leads to the other thing that prevents us from bringing people to Jesus is our hearts tell us that we are saved by our works. And we start to believe the lie that other people, if they just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, then they can experience the amazing grace that we've experienced. And yet we see such a clear picture of the friends of the paralytic man bringing him to Jesus to find healing. And the healing that this man receives is not the healing of his legs, but the healing of his soul. How much clearer do we see that we must be those who bring our friends to Jesus when we see the spiritual poverty in our own hearts? So how can we bring our friends to Jesus? How can we bring our friends to Jesus in such a way? Well, first, we can pray for them. We can earnestly think of those friends or family or children of ours who are outside of the relationship, the covenant that God has made with us. And we can pray for them on their behalf. One question I often think to myself is, who else is praying for this person? Who else is interceding for this person on their behalf? We have the privilege of going before God and interceding for our friends and family that they would come to faith in Christ. That they would come to see Jesus as the great physician. The next thing that we can do is we can actually evangelize to our friends. We can tell them about the healing grace that God brings to us. That Jesus came for the sin-sick sinner. That the righteous don't need the doctor but the unrighteous. That He's not asking you to clean up your life. He's asking you to believe in Him. He's asking you to trust in Him so we can bring our friends to Jesus through evangelizing and we can also bring our friends to Jesus by loving them. We can manifest the presence of God by loving the outcast, the poor, those who are on the fringe of society. Do you know that your love for your neighbor displays the love of Christ to you? We must bring our friends to Jesus because this is the only spiritual healing that they can receive is through Christ, through faith. So, Jesus forgives those who come in faith. But Jesus also heals those who He forgives. And we see this in verses 3-7. through seven. As the, the scribes and the Pharisees, those who were the intellectual elite, were questioning Jesus in their hearts. They were making jumps and assumptions and conclusions about what Jesus was saying and who He was. They were called Him blasphemous. Now, 
I may not know a lot, but I do know one thing to call Jesus blasphemous is actually blasphemous. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, asks them a question. An important question. A tricky question. He first asks them, why do you think evil in your hearts? Their evil is coming out of their lack of trust in what Jesus is saying about who Jesus has said He is. Him being the Son of God. Then He goes on to ask for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk. Which is easier to say? Now, if we're being honest about this, it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. You can't see the tangible evidence of your sins being forgiven. But if Jesus were to say, rise and walk, He would have to put His money where His mouth is. And so, Jesus, wanting to display His kingly authority, looks at the man and tells him to rise and walk. What the Pharisees were assuming is that Jesus was not the king. The, the Pharisees were, were making good conclusions that Jesus was actually putting Himself in divine authority. But what their hearts didn't realize is that He was and is the King. That He is the Word made flesh. That Jesus is God. That Jesus is the King. Which means that the King writes the rules the king has established the law. He's established the rules just like a parent establishes the rules in their own household. He has the authority to forgive and he shows it because he is the king. The problem with the scribes' hearts here is their failure to realize that Jesus has come compassionately loving the outcast. Why should this man receive forgiveness from sins? What has he done for God? What has he done for the nation of Israel? What has he done to catch the eye of God? This is blasphemous for Jesus to say this. But really, it's not. Because Jesus is King. He writes the rules. He forgives the outcast. He forgives those who come to Him in faith. And we see His kingly authority as the man immediately gets up and goes home.
I wonder if you're catching the progression of what's taking place here. The man is brought to Jesus and Jesus sees their faith. The man is forgiven of his sins by Jesus pronouncing it and declaring it. And there's healing that takes place afterwards. And so the logical question that maybe you might be wrestling with right now is, well, why am I not healed of all my illnesses and diseases? Am I not a Christian if I get sick? There's something at play here. This man was healed and was told to get up and walk, but more importantly, his soul is healed. This is the important part of this passage. It's not that this man was told to get up and walk, but that this man was forgiven of his sins by doing nothing to earn it. I wonder if you're here this morning and the weight of believing that somehow you earn your salvation has weighed you down. That has caused you to doubt the goodness of salvation. To question, am I in the fold or am I out? Am I a part of the family of God or am I out? Let me just encourage you this morning that you are called to come to Christ in faith, in trust. It does not matter how sin-sick your heart is. He is able to heal it. It does not matter how paralyzed you may be. He is able to heal it. The man getting up is an inward, is an outward expression of the inward healing we receive the moment we profess faith in Christ. It is immediate. It is full. We don't see Matthew here explaining that the paralytic man got up and started to wobble around like a newborn fawn. We see that he gets up and immediately he starts to walk home. And so it is with our faith that when we believe in Jesus, we are immediately healed. We are cleansed. We are fully what's called righteous in the sight of God. He sees us as he sees his son, sinless and spotless. But in case you think then that extends to my outward actions, that now I must be perfect, that's not the case. We have our indwelling sin. And this is where we can take great confidence as we still continue to live and wrestle with the indwelling sin that tempts us to stray. Is that God's promises are true and when we come to Him in faith, we receive immediate healing. Because He's the King. He writes the rules. The King forgives all those who come to Him in faith. 
we see that Jesus heals those he forgives. You have been healed and cleansed by the blood of Christ. And as you continue to walk on this journey where you have ups and downs, you are continuing to be healed by the gift of the Holy Spirit that was given to you to help you. As we move on now to our third and final point, we see that Jesus should be worshipped because He forgives sins. This is how we see this passage finishing up. As the man rose and went home, the crowd saw it. The crowds saw this miracle that took place. Jesus put the, put the scribes in their, their place. And as the man gets up and walks home, the crowds saw it and they were afraid. Who wouldn't be afraid by a paralytic man getting up and walking home? This shows that they believed and saw that something was taking place here that was supernatural, that they hadn't seen before. This is a miracle that is taking place in their life. This is the only appropriate response when we come to face to face with God's glory is being afraid, fear. We see this time and time again in the Old Testament with Israel as Moses is on the mountain and there's thunder there is lightning. There is fire. The people are coming face to face with the glory of God and they bow down in fear and they worship God. Which is exactly what the people do here as they were afraid. Their being afraid, their fear led them to glorify God. And so it is with us when we come to Jesus. We see the awesomeness. We see the bigness. We see the greatness of who God is and our hearts are humbled. And we come to, the, we come to God in fear and we glorify Him. Because fear leads to worship. It leads to glorifying God. Appropriate and proper fear of God will always lead to glorify God, not to run from God. And so these people saw this take place. They were afraid and they glorified God. So, what does it mean to worship Jesus as King? Because here's the sad reality about this passage. Is that this great miracle takes place. And yet, as we finish, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They were so close yet so far away. They came so close to worshiping Jesus as King and yet they were so off the mark that they didn't. They glorified God for the power they gave to for the power he gave to man. Jesus is not a mere man, he is the word made flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so we must not we must not worship God as or Jesus as just a man. 
We must worship Him as our King. We must worship Him as our Lord. This is one of the the problems is that we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus is my Savior, but it ends there. No, Jesus is our Savior. He is our Messiah. Yes, but He is our King. And because He is our King, we follow Him and obey Him. We trust that what He says is better for us. The temptation with this is to create a Jesus in our own image and likeness. Instead of becoming conformed to Jesus' image and likeness. So we must do everything to worship Him and not a self-made Him. A Jesus that just tells me to love the people who are easy to love. A Jesus that tells me to just do the bare minimum. To not leave the dead to bury the dead. We must follow the King because the King has our best interest. This is the amazing aspect of this passage is that we see salvation unfolding before us. And as I get ready to pray, I'd just like to encourage you one last time, see Jesus as King. Jesus being King in our lives is good for us because that means Jesus writes the rules. If we don't view Jesus as King, then we will work and work and work for our reconciliation with God. And if it was up to us to pay our way into heaven, it would be hopeless and we would be helpless. Because what do you give a king that already has everything? If I can leave you with this last encouragement off of that, it's nothing. And that's the amazing news of the gospel is that it is a free gift given to you when you trust in Jesus. You don't have to do anything besides trust and obey because there is no other way. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus is King, would that become more true in our hearts and minds? Amen.